Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. As we've been worshiping this morning and the music and the prayers and I don't know, I, I've sensed a kind of invitation to release. And in many ways, that's um, what the story in Second Kings is going to be taking us into. Um, and maybe it's just me, but I find myself holding something tight. I don't know what it is. Um, so I wonder if we could just... Do you ever re- realize that you're sort of holding your shoulders really tight? <laughs> You just got to kind of drop them and be present in the seat and let your breath out. <sighs> because God, God holds you. You don't, none of us have to hold ourselves. I think uh, the man we encounter, Naaman, today, though, he was a man very much who held himself, or thought he did, anyway. This was the way that the king's reading began. And now Naaman, he was commander of the army of the king of Aram. This is a kingdom of uh, what we would now know as Syria, which is interesting given our current moment. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. He was a great man who was highly regarded. And right from the beginning, Kings has given us this picture of this powerful man. And one uh, Old Testament scholar and translator, Golden Gay, he, he uh, translates this as Naaman was a big man. He'd received accolades. He had the ear and the loyalty of the royal family. He had stood on multiple battlefields, towering over everyone, victorious. He was a big man. But you know, tragedy hits us all, even the big people. I think the way that this, this last sentence reads is, is rather poignant Naaman was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Naaman was a big and valiant man, but he had leprosy. You know, there comes a a moment for each of us, and uh, sooner for some of us than it does for others, when we come face to face with our limitations with the horrible reality of a world that's careening out of our our control. Whatever our security, whatever our greatness, whatever it is that would maybe make us a big person, even if we don't in any way think of ourselves as that, eventually it will crumble. He had the world by the tail, but she was brilliant but 
he had a good job or a stellar reputation or a picture-perfect family. But she was always able to figure out any dilemma, and she always somehow landed on her feet. But... And then we're introduced to a very different character in the story, a young girl. This was a young Israelite. She was a refugee captive. She was one of Naaman's spoils of war. And she was serving Naaman's wife. And in what must be one of the most profound acts of generosity, mercy, and kindness in the entire Bible, this young girl goes to Naaman's wife and says, if Naaman could just get back to my home, there's a prophet from God there who could heal him. And so the king of Aram, or Syria, Ben-Hadad, tells Naaman to go to Israel, and he sends with him cartloads of loot. He takes roughly $100,000 worth of silver, several hundred thousand dollars worth of gold, reams of expensive, finely tailored fabric, and he loads it all up, and he takes it off, and he takes it to the king of Israel. Now, isn't this interesting? The girl didn't say, go to the king of Israel. The girl said, go to the prophet. But apparently, Naaman wasn't the only big man. The king of Syria was a big man, too. And you know how big people operate. They operate with other big people. When you have power, you go to the other people with power. This is the way the world works. So the young girl said, go see the prophet, but King Ben-Hadad, he knew nothing about the prophet. He didn't know the guy's name. That guy had no power. He brushed the girl aside because this poor girl, she doesn't know the way the world really works. Powerful people deal with powerful people, and you buy what you want. And so Naaman shows up in Israel, loaded up with all the loot, and a letter from King Ben-Hadad of Syria to the king of Israel. Now what we know is most of the time Syria and Israel were at violent odds. They were normally at war with one another. It seems like at this moment there was some kind of uh, detente, some kind of uh, truce. The, the, the conflict wasn't raging. And here comes the very man who had been the ruler of the army who had killed King Ahab of Israel. He shows up with all the loot, and he shows up with a letter from Ben-Hadad, and this is what the letter says. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. And you can imagine the king of Israel what in the world is this guy thinking? He goes into a fit. He assumes that King Ben-Hadad is trying to uh, cause a war again. And he just begins to freak out. And this prophet from the edge of things hears about it, sends word to the king of Israel and says, would you send him to talk to me? <laughs> we'll deal with him. Now, I think it's fascinating because if this were a Hollywood film, Elisha would be the central character. But in the story that 2 Kings 5 tells, Elisha never even actually shows his face. Now, there's probably lots of reasons why. 
It seems to me, though, at least one of the themes is that this man, Naaman, a big man, sent by a big man to do big things in the way that big people do with, with lots of power, and Elisha simply wasn't going to engage that. So Elisha is in some ways like a shadow in this story. Elisha's message to the king is this, tell Naaman to come and see me, then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And to say he'll know there's a prophet in Israel is to say Naaman will know that there is one in Israel who speaks for God. So Naaman loads up his silver and his gold and all of the fine material and he treks off to meet the prophet. And then he arrives. And how are big people used to being greeted in this big world that they own? Well, they're bowed down to, they are um, acquiesced to everything and the trumpets and the heralds and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Elisha sends his servant and Elisha says, if you'd like to be clean, go to the river Jordan and dunk yourself in the river seven times and you'll be clean. And Naaman is beside himself. What are you talking about? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you dealing with me? Do you know who I am? Do you know that I'm a big man? And Elisha, I mean, Naaman huffs off. He is not about to stoop to this humiliation. What Elisha is supposed to do, Naaman says, is he's supposed to show up at the door and he is supposed to stand because what do you do when you're in a big man's presence? You stand. And he is supposed to appeal to God and wave his hand and do some powerful, prophetly kind of thing. And he is supposed to heal me. But you're going to send me off to a river? You're not going to even greet me? Well, we actually have better rivers back in Damascus. I don't need this muddy, stinky river. Well, who stops him as he's huffing off, taking all of his goods back to Syria? He gets maybe a mile away from the prophet's house, and one of Naaman's servants, not a big person, one of Naaman's servants gets up the courage and stops him and says, I have a question for you. If the prophet had asked you to do something huge, you would have done it. Why won't you do something small? Well, it's because big people do big things. Big people don't do little things. But Naaman comes to his senses. He relents. He washes in the Jordan. And after the seventh dunk, he comes out of the, whopper, uh, out of the water, dripping wet, but skin smooth as a baby's booty. This is what the scripture says. He had the flesh of a young boy. He was completely healed. But here's the thing about this story. Almost all of the early readers of scripture knew this story wasn't just about Naaman getting cleansed of leprosy. The story points to the healing that all of us need. 
Ephraim the Syrian spoke for many of the church fathers when he said, sin is the leprosy of the soul. We are all sinful. We know this through scripture, but we also know it through experience. A dominant theme in scripture for sin is sickness. That there is a deep malady that is sunk deep into our bones and we need to be healed. There's death in us and God wants to heal us from that death. Now many of us um, have been taught that the primary theme in scripture about sin is that it's a moral wrong that then we need to pay off that moral wrong and since we can't then the price for that for God to uh, expunge all of his anger is to kill Jesus. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that particular picture of what's happening on the cross and resurrection. But all I want to say at this moment is a more central theme in Scripture is that sin is a disease. That sin is something that we as humans need to be cured from. And that only in Christ, the great healer, can we be cured. The last time I uh, preached this story was about five years ago, and my mom was dying of cancer. And I remember thinking about this sickness, about how I would love for my mom to be healed, and how angry I was at the sickness. I think that's how God feels I think a lot of the images we have of God's anger and wrath, it's this anger at the sickness. It's destroying us. It's ravaging us. But also, where Naaman was being baptized, where he was dunking seven times, it was the Jordan River. This is the river that the Israelites had to walk through, that God had to rescue them through as they were entering the promised land, as they were going through God's gateway into their good life. The Jordan River is the very water where Jesus was baptized. And in Jesus' baptism, he was resurrecting this entire story of Israel and the Old Testament. And Jesus in his own body was saying, in the same way that God carried Israel through the Jordan, I am now going to carry all of humanity through the waters of death. And in that very water, you will actually find in your death the healing that is necessary if we are to live. Now, it's kind of difficult, perhaps, when we talk about big people, because maybe a lot of us, we don't think of ourselves as big people at all. And maybe Naaman, in some ways, is a, an extreme caricature, because he was powerful. He had resources, and he had uh, servants, and he had... A, his own kind of little kingdom. But you know, if we're, if we're reading this the way the early church read this, it was talking about our deep humanity, that all of us have an ego. All of us have a way that we think we make our life work. All of us have a kind of death that we resist. Last week, I told you my little story about uh, having to have my friend Myron parallel park my car, how embarrassing that was. A tiny little stab at the ego. 
that maybe it's too easy. I was thinking about it more, and I thought, Miska says sometimes when I go to an unhealthy place and uh, she and I are perhaps at odds, she says, I like to be the martyr. Any of you guys do that? No? <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I mean, what am I doing there? I, I'm trying to hold on to something instead of just surrendering. I had an interaction this week where afterwards I had to face how much in that moment I really wanted to be perceived in a certain way. I wanted to be seen with a certain kind of sophistication, a certain kind of awareness, and I really wanted this person to know. I think in this story, and in the story that unfolds throughout the rest of Scripture, certainly the story that unfolds in Christ and the invitation to us, all of us are going to have to go into that Jordan. We're all going to have to surrender whatever it is that is our bigness. The Jordan River offers the death that we must allow Jesus to carry us through if we're ever to be cured of the death that's inside us. There is a death inside us, a great disease. And Jesus will heal us by taking us through the deaths that would kill us if we were to enter that death on our own. But with Jesus, what would kill us offers us life. And when Jesus carries us through death, healing happens. But we have to go through those waters. We have to die. The Jordan offers the death that we walk through with Jesus in order to live. The Jordan is where big men have to reckon with how they cannot in the end heal themselves or others or win the game. The Jordan is where big men must reckon with how everything is mercy. And isn't it the strangest thing that what we resist is mercy? Because mercy means we give up. We resist mercy because we presume we don't need it. But everything is mercy. And the very thing that leads to mercy is the very thing we fear the most, the very thing that we think will be our end, the very thing that we think will, will, will consume us and destroy us, which is our death. The death of our plans, the death of our image, the death of the certainty of our future, the death of our family, our children, the death that justice will be done for us. It is to abandon everything that we cling to other than the Christ who raises us from the dead. It's only out of this place we can hear we can hear the prayer that's a blessing that John Vanier offers us. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness that you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child 
and sing and dance in the love of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Removed from the love of God and the Christ who raises us from the dead, that prayer is sadistic. But prayed underneath the consuming love of Christ and in faith of Jesus who raises us from the dead, that prayer is life. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.